When I was in high school, I was an athlete, uh, played football, wrestled, ran track. And during track season, every year we would go to a number of relays. One relay we would go to every year was the Bishop Relays up in Bishop, California. Actually, one of my favorite relays for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that I just loved it up there on the eastern side of the Sierra Mountains up near Mammoth. It was just beautiful. And secondly, I always performed better in those relays for whatever reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, maybe it's the thinner air. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, but one year, I think it was my junior year, we were up at the Bishop Relays, and uh, I was in a number of events, including the long jump relay. And the long jump relay in this particular setting was that, you, that each school had three team members that would perform the long jump, and then they would take the longest jump from each person and combine them, and then whoever, had, of course, had the longest combination of jumps would be the winner. And we had a really good chance to win this year. Uh, we had a number of folks who were uh, good jumpers, um, me included, and the problem was this. I kept scratching. And I don't know if you know what it means to scratch in the long jump, but the long jump is simply this. You run down the runway as fast as you can, you plant your foot on that board, and you just jump, all right? And the board is roughly about a foot wide, usually white in color so you can see it. But the problem is this. If you step over the board, you scratched. In other words, it's an invalid jump. So you get four attempts. First attempt, scratch. Second attempt, scratch. Third attempt, scratch. I did not have a valid jump. So my final attempt, the coach pulls me aside and says, look, Darren, you just need to get a valid jump. We have a chance at this. But you, you know, I know what you're trying to do. You want to get a personal best. Just get a valid jump. All right? Here's the thing. I heard my coach, but I wasn't listening. Because I had other ideas. He was right. I was trying to get a, I was trying to get a personal best. I was performing well that day. It was a good, good relays for me. And I wanted to get my personal best. I wanted to crack 22, if possible, 23 feet in the long jump. And I thought, this day I've got a chance of doing it. So I had my final jump. So I lined up. I just gave it all that I had, and I scratched. I didn't just blow it for myself, of course. I blew it for the whole team. You know, it wasn't just me that paid the price. The rest of the team paid the price as well. I let my pride of wanting to get a personal best stand in the way of what was best for the team. But in the process, even though I heard my coach, I did not listen to him because I had my own agenda. I had my own set of expectations of what I wanted to do. In many ways, Palm Sunday is a lot like that. You see, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and no longer is Jesus telling his disciples or saying, don't tell people who I am. Jesus comes in. He comes in as king. He comes in as Messiah. <clears throat> but the thing is, is anyone really listening? Are they really listening? Is anyone there willing to give up their expectations 
Is anyone there willing to give up what they want in order to grab onto the larger vision of God's kingdom? Palm Sunday challenges us on many levels. It challenges us to look at our own expectations, to look at who really is the king of our lives. Who is it that we're really worshiping? And it forces us to take a hard look at Jesus, at who he is, and what he calls us to. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 28 through 44 this morning. As we celebrate this Palm Sunday, what is Palm Sunday all about? Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit more depth. But let's read this together. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied. A colt, by the way, this colt, by the way, is the foal or of a donkey, all right, that has never been ridden, in which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What are our expectations? Well, let's kind of set this up. So what we see here is that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for Passover. All right. Now, <clears throat> Passover is one of the three feasts that every Jewish male is required to attend to celebrate. And generally speaking, it wouldn't just be the Jewish males. They would also bring their families, especially at Passover. And the three feasts are the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, also known as the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, all right? And all three of them, the Jewish males were required to go, and there they would make sacrifices, there they would bring their offerings, and there they would celebrate the harvest, and also celebrate, in many ways, what God has done in the history of Israel, Passover being that event in which God freed his people Israel from slavery or bondage to Egypt. And it was a big deal, all right? The city was packed. 
Imagine this. Imagine a city that normally might have anywhere from 75 to 80,000 people in it. Imagine it's got over a million people there. It's bursting at the seams. And so people are everywhere. This is what Jerusalem is at this time. And so as the people are there, Jesus is approaching. And if you know the geography of Israel, basically you come up through Bethany and you come to the Mount of Olives and you descend into the Kidron Valley. It's a large valley and it then ascends up to Jerusalem. All right? And so Jesus is making his way in. And along the way there, the streets are lined. There's people everywhere. There's an electric feel in the air. People are sensing something is happening. Something is going on. And so what they begin to do is is Jesus makes his way on the donkey as people begin to spread their cloaks out in front of him. They begin to cut palms off of trees. And they begin to wave them and lay them on the, the ground uh, before as he's making his way in there. And, and what's important to note is that palms were a very important, pe- uh, very important symbol for the people of Israel. They're, you know, a sign of, of, of nationalism. Imagine a flag. Imagine, imagine Fourth of July as everybody's waving their flags. Those f- flags have powerful symbolic value. Well, imagine this is a flag in the sense because what it does is it symbolizes, it goes back to... Um, uh, it goes back to the Maccabean times, intertestament period, in which uh, Simon Maccabeus rode into the city after victory over the Syrians. A victory that they thought was highly improbable and unlikely, but nevertheless, uh, Macca- uh, Simon Maccabeus has victory over the Syrians, and so the people, what they did was they, you know, this became their symbols. As a matter of fact, if you look at coinage of the times, of that time, uh, on the back of the coin was the palm tree. And so it's a highly symbolic, you know, it's a sense of nationalism. So people are waving palms and they're getting excited. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are starting to freak out a little bit. Aside from the blasphemy they believe in ascribing to Jesus as Messiah and Lord, they're also concerned about how the Romans are going to react to all of this. And so you can sense there's something electric happening. There's something highly charged in this situation But what begins to happen over time is that people's expectations and anticipations are challenged. And it challenges ours as well. And so today I want us to see how Jesus is worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our worship. But he also calls us to make a choice. First, let's talk about how Jesus is worthy of our devotion. What is the significance of Jesus' entering into Jerusalem on a donkey? All right. There's really three things in this. Three things in this in terms of Jesus' entering Jerusalem on a donkey. The first is this, is that people would recognize that Jesus is coming in as king. That he is coming in as king. They know their history. And they know that King David had his son Solomon ride in on a donkey to affirm that this was David's choice as king. As David was dying, as he was coming to the end of his life, the end of his reign, he chose Solomon as his successor. And so we see in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 to 35, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride in my own mule. 
and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him as king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And so the people recognize the symbolism in this. They recognize that Jesus is coming in as the line of David, as king, as he comes in on a donkey. But they also might recognize that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy. In Zechariah 9.9, it was prophesied. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see that Jesus rides into Jerusalem as, as recognition of the line of David. He rides into Jerusalem in the fulfillment of prophecy. And as a result, there's great expectation, there's great anticipation. But they also fail to recognize the symbolism that Jesus is riding in on a donkey. Because here's the thing. The third thing we see in this is that if, a, if one of royalty rides into a city, they can ride in one of two ways. They can ride in on a horse. They can ride in on a donkey. If they ride in on a horse, what does that mean? That means war. That's war. But if they ride in a donkey, that means they bring peace. It's peace. You see, this is an important point because what is it the people are expecting of Jesus? You see, Jesus comes in. He comes in as king. He comes in as Messiah, as the fulfillment of prophecy. But what they fail to recognize is that Jesus came to bring peace. Peace with God. See, what they're expecting is that Jesus is going to come and he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to establish himself as king over Israel right then and there. But what they don't recognize is that Jesus came to free them from a greater oppressor than Rome. There is, there is a, an oppressor that's greater than Rome, than, greater than any government official ruler who has ever lived. And that is the oppressor of sin. Sin. That very thing that keeps us from relationship with God. Jesus came to go to the cross and to deal with sin once for all. That's why he came. He came to bring peace with God. Look, here's the thing. Kings will come and kings will go. Governments will come and governments will go. But sin, sin was that one oppressor that kept everyone in bondage until it was dealt with. And that's what Jesus did. <clears throat> we see a few things that the King of Kings has come to do. First, we see that the king of kings has come to establish God's eternal kingdom. His eternal kingdom. In verses 39 through 44, 
The Pharisees say to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, even nature itself recognizes the significance of what Jesus has come to do. He has come to bring rule and reign in our lives, to bring God's eternal kingdom. This idea of God's kingdom has to do with God's authority in our lives. The people, they expect that Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, but that's not what Jesus came to do. And of course, this is going to clash. What's interesting to notice, many of the very people who, who cried Hosanna will less than a week later cry crucify. And so we see that the King of Kings has come to establish God's eternal kingdom. He has also come to reveal to us the ethics of God's kingdom. The King of Kings has come to reveal to us the ethics of God's kingdom. What does, what does it mean to be one who follows after Jesus? Well, in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus says to his disciples, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great runs exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to reveal to us the ethics of God's kingdom, of what it means to really lead, of what it means to serve others in leading them. And not only that, Jesus came to reveal to us that he was to go to the cross. He says here, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in John 12, 27, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is why he came, to go to the cross. Jesus came to go to the cross to deal with sin so that we could be reconciled unto our Heavenly Father. But the thing we have to ask ourselves is this. This is an essential question. Is Jesus king of our lives? Is he king of our lives? Or is this some area of our life in which Jesus is not king? You know, when I was a brand new Christian, my grandmother gave me this little book. I forget who the author was, called My Heart, Christ's Home. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Just this little thin booklet. You can sit and read it in one sitting. Um, but it tells the story about a person who basically invites Jesus in. And Jesus says, I knock at the door. And he opens the door and lets Jesus in. But what happens is that he says, Jesus, here, this is your room. You can have this room. But what he begins to realize over time is that Jesus didn't come to have a room. He didn't come to have two rooms. He didn't come to have three rooms. He came to have the whole thing. In other words, what we need to do is not give Jesus a room, is not give him two rooms. We need to take the deed of our life and sign it over to him. Jesus came to be the king of our lives. Everything. The whole kit and caboodle. What does that mean anyways, kit and caboodle? I never knew. 
but all of it. Is Jesus king of our lives? You see, the very same people who would worship him, who would praise him and wave this, these singing Hosanna, when Jesus doesn't meet their expectations, when Jesus doesn't do what they want him to do, they say crucify. Because here's the thing. He's really not the king of their lives. Their expectations are the king of their lives. What they want, that's the king of their lives. What they think God should do, that's the king of their lives. Jesus is not the king of their lives. Is Jesus the king of your life? Or are there expectations that maybe he's not meeting? Maybe there's things that he hasn't done. And you're upset. You're bothered by that. And you're thinking, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know, I'm having a hard time singing Hosanna. Is Jesus the king of our lives? The second thing I want us to see is that not only is Jesus worthy of our devotion, but he's also worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our worship. We see that Jesus is more than just king. He's Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. In Jesus, we see God's promises fulfilled. If you want to see a promise that God has made, look to Jesus. He is the exact representation of God's being. As a matter of fact, this is how Paul says it. He says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so we see that in Jesus, he is our Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And whatever promises he has made regarding the future, God will fulfill them. We can trust that. Jesus will return. Jesus will bring about all that he has said he will accomplish. I know it's tough sometimes when we're saying, oh Lord, I just don't want to wait anymore. And that's why I often find myself these days when I pray, you know, at the end of my prayers has kind of changed. I often say, even so, come soon, Lord Jesus. I just pray and I say, Lord, I'm leaving this in your hands. I'm trusting you. Even so, would you come soon? But I say that, maybe I say it with a little desperation, but mostly I say it with faith, trusting that God will fulfill all his promises. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the Messiah and he came to free us from slavery to sin and death and to reconcile us unto God. In Romans 8, 1 and 2, you know this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus came that we may be free, and I mean truly free. Free from fear. 
free from anxiety, free from the gripping attempts of this world to mold us into its shape. It's hard. Make no mistake, but Jesus has come to set us free. You know, one of the greatest examples of this I saw when when I was in Vietnam. I mean, look, technically in Vietnam, I went there and I trained pastors in the underground church uh, over a couple years. And I'm going to tell you something right now. It's amazing to watch people who are truly living up freedom in a culture and society in which such freedom does not exist. Technically, it's illegal for them to do what they were doing. They, it was illegal for them to gather together on Sunday, to worship the Lord, to read the Word, to baptize, to pray. All those things were technically illegal. And yet they did it openly, unashamedly, without fear. It was an amazing thing to behold. They would often come to me and they would say, oh, you're a pastor from America. That's a, you know, it's so great. And I said, no, 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 I'm not the hero in the story. You guys... You guys, you know, I come to you and I'm just amazed. And, you know, they would, they would go out into the streets to evangelize. And they would wear T-shirts emblazoned with the cross. They gave me one of those shirts. You know, and they would go and they would evangelize openly in the streets knowing that they could be arrested at any time. Jesus came to free us from fear and anxiety to free us from what the world tries to shape us into. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Amen. He is worthy to be praised. So, and another essential question, is Jesus the object of our worship? Is he the one that we are proclaiming? Is he the one that we are exalting? And so we see that Jesus is worthy of our devotion. On Palm Sunday, he is worthy of our worship. But then we finally see that Jesus calls us to make a choice. He calls us to make a choice. Throughout his ministry, we see that Jesus called people to make wise choices regarding his identity and his call on their lives. And understand something. These choices that we make have real consequences. They have real consequences. There's a time when this wealthy young man approached Jesus and asked him a very important question. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, we see this. As he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that the question of the ages? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
this man was in bondage to his wealth. This man worshipped his wealth. For this man, wealth was the object of his devotion. And Jesus knew this. And so this young man comes to him. I don't doubt very much the earnestness or motives of this young man. I want to believe that this young man came up earnestly seeking after Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love how Jesus looks at him and he responds to him and he recognizes and he says, well, you know, you, you know, you, you, you know the commandments. Uh, love the Lord your God. Uh, you know, all that stuff. Don't defraud. Don't lie. Don't cheat. You know, love your mom and dad. All these things. And, and I love the young man's response. He says, well, good teacher, I've known these things. I've been doing these things since I was a child. And I, Jesus looks at him and he looks at him with love in his heart. And he says, well, there's one thing that's keeping you in bondage. There's one thing that's standing in your way. It's your wealth. Go. Sell everything you have. Give it all away. Give it to the poor. Then follow me. Make me the object of your work, worship. Make me the object of your devotion. Follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. And you will find life. But what did this man choose to do? He chose to walk away. And you know what's interesting about that story is how what Jesus doesn't do. Do you know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't chase after him. He doesn't run him down and say, hey, I can see that my answer to you was a little too strict. You know, let me lower my standards just a little bit. Maybe that'll do it for you. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He lets the man walk away. Our choices have real consequences. Jesus calls us to make a choice for him. He calls us to let go of everything that stands in the way of him. If there's anything that's holding us or keeping us from him, whatever it may be, let it go. Do you have expectations? Let them go. Do you have demands for God? Let them go. Offer yourself unto Him in service. Give your life unto Him without reservation. And you will find true purpose and meaning that cannot be bought or traded for anything. There was nothing this man was going to lose that even compared to the value of what he would gain in Christ. There is nothing that God will ever ask us to get rid of in our lives that even begins to compare in value to what he gives us in himself. Hallelujah. This is what Palm Sunday calls us to. What are our expectations? Look, I want us to be reminded of a couple of things. First, let us be reminded that God loves us. God loves us. I love how we see as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he begins to weep over the city. He begins to weep and he said, if you even knew your time of visitation, you would have embraced me, but you didn't know. You chose instead to reject. Jesus weeps. 
He calls us unto salvation with him. But I want you to know he, it breaks his heart when we refuse him. God loves us. He came to redeem us from sin, and when we refuse, it breaks his heart. He weeps over the city. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. And in this young man, he sees in him something, and he loves him. And yet he lets him walk away. God loves us. He loves us. Second thing we need to be reminded of is that God's offer still stands. God's offer still stands. If we come to him, he will not refuse us, nor will he ever leave us, nor forsake us. God's offer still stands. And so the essential question is this. Have you chosen to follow Jesus today? That's the essential question. Have you chosen to follow Jesus today? Are you willing to lay everything down and follow after him? To give him everything. To give him your all. I encourage you, if you haven't done that, if you haven't done that today, I encourage you to lay everything down before him and give it to him and follow him with all your heart. And what you will gain will be so much greater than anything you leave behind. Eternal life with God. A future and a hope. We live in challenging times, do we not? We live in very challenging times. People in the Midwest dealing with these storms. In Tennessee, these school shootings. It breaks my heart. I can only imagine how God sees it. Will we lay everything at his feet and follow after him today? This is what Palm Sunday calls us to. To lay down our expectations. To embrace him as king, as Messiah in our lives. Amen?